Let us, um, as we're reading this, let us be praying that it grips us. It's a heavy um, passage, and just let us pray that it would, we would see the seriousness of it. So let me start from verse 1 to 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you who are puffed up and have not rather mourned, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with O leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with the sexual, sexually immoral people. Yeah, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, nor or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an adulterer or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what I have to do with judging those also who are outside, do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So let me pray now for a blessing on the sermon and for us to through the weight of these passages, so let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, um, I just pray now, Lord, that we would um, ask for your presence, for you to be here with us, for us to feel, my God, these verses and the seriousness of them. Let us now, Lord Jesus, put away the smiles and, and the giggles and the laughs, Lord, and let us be at this time that we're of seriousness, my God. That there are people in your church, my God, that profess your name, and yet they are committing these very same deeds. Lord, isn't that sad? So we pray for those people, my God, for repentance, for salvation. Let them rather desire to be joined to Christ than to be handed over to Satan. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray for Jason as he brings this sermon, that he would bring it with much conviction and power, my God. He would... Be bold and serious that we would feel it, my God. Holy Spirit, let this be a day of mourning. A day where we believe, Lord Jesus, that you will judge sinners. That you will cast the immoral into hell. And let us believe that there is a place called hell, my God, that people go and will go. So let us, my God, fear and tremble before you, Lord Jesus, today. And we pray for your presence. We pray for you to be here. Oh, God, give Jason wisdom, Lord God. Let him bring this sermon with power, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord Jesus, please, we, we're, we plead with you to be here with us, to help us believe these things, help us believe in church discipline, and that you have given your ministers the keys, my God, to bind and loose, that we have the authority on the word of God to discipline those, Lord, who profess your name, but yet think they can live in sin. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us desire purity and holiness. Let us, my God, desire the, that sincere, the sincerity and truth that live in word of the new covenant. Oh, God, please be with us here this day, convic convicting us, convincing us of these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.
the heart of church discipline is understanding the heart of the gospel. A proper understanding and practice flow from a proper understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to everyone who believes. The gospel is not just a message, but it is the power of God. And it is the power of God in bringing regeneration. It's the power of God whereby God makes a dead person alive. And you who are dead in trespasses and sins. He made you alive. Ephesians 2. We were born dead in trespasses and sins. It's the power of regeneration. He made you alive. Paul said that my speech and my preaching are not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 4-5. 1 Corinthians 4.20, Paul states, For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. So the gospel is a message. But it's not just a message. It's the message of God. And it's the message of God that the Spirit of God takes and convicts of the presence of God that grants the dead people life. That's regeneration. Grants the forgiveness of sins. That's the transaction. Grants the power of God to believe. And belief is the power to walk out the faith that God has given you. It's the power of God. It's not a hope so, it's a no so. It's, a maybe, it's not a maybe so, it's a I get to. And it's a I get to walk these truths out, not in my power, but in the power of God. Paul commenting on the power of the gospel in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 states, For this very reason we thank God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of man, but as it is in truth, the word of God. As it is in reality, the nature of this book is that it is the word of God. This is a divine message given to us by God himself that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. It's not just the word of man. These aren't simply just words that we say. It's not just words that people make up. This is the word of God. And when people believe the word of God, the word of God, the word of God does something which also effectively works in you. First Thessalonians 2.13. It's the word of God effectively working. It's the word of God performing its work. Uh, Nasby translates that which also performs its work in you who believe. So those who are believing are characterized by those who are receiving the work of the Scripture in their life. And the work of God's Word is effectively working. It's performing its work for those who believe. It is at work in the life of the believer. This is what it means to be a believer. You believe the gospel. God brings you regeneration. The Holy Spirit grants you life. Life from the dead. And as you are born again by the seed of Scripture, that seed takes root in your life and it produces an ethic of love. It produces an ethic of obedience. That's what it means to be a Christian. You believe in God's Word. God's word is working in your heart to do what God has sent it to do. And God has sent his word to save you and to sanctify you. That's what the word of God does. You believe this word of God, it saves you. And in saving you, it puts you on a path of sanctification. Jesus said in John seventeen seventeen, Sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth. The primary means by which God is ordained to sanctify you, that is to make you holy, is the word of God. 
Believers are those who believe the gospel, and because they believe the gospel, the word of God is effectively performing that sanctifying work in you. That comes together in those who believe. For the rain comes down, and the snow from heaven waters the earth, brings forth its bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So God uses an analogy in Isaiah 55.10. He gives rain. He gives snow. Everything God does is for a purpose. Everything God does has a, a good effect. Then he says, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. For the believer who believes the word of God, the word of God saves his soul from hell. The word of God sanctifies him from sin and puts him on a path towards holiness, towards being like the Lord Jesus Christ. The same word of God is the word that condemns the sinner, the one who does not believe. All who have been chosen by the Father and predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Romans 8.29, receive this glorious grace of salvation. In this salvation, we see that the, the penalty for sin is removed. Romans 5.9, much more having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So when we believe in the gospel, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We are saved from the wrath of God. Before we were saved, we were under the wrath of God. God's judgment was upon us for the guilt in which we have disobeyed God. But having been justified by faith, we are saved from this wrath. So salvation removes the penalty of sin. Sanctification removes then the power of sin. And these two things go together. The moment you're saved is the moment you begin a journey of sanctification. God takes the penalty away, but the power of sin is still present in your life because of the problem of indwelling sin. Now, when will sin be completely removed from a believer's life? That's called glorification. Glorification removes the very presence of sin. Now, thankfully, those whom God has predestined, these he also called, and those he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified, Romans 8.30. So God has a golden chain of salvation, of working this from his perspective, his power in saving those whom he has chosen. The evidence of that salvation is the confession in salvation, and then the ongoing work of, of sanctification, of walking out the holiness of God as you engage in this process of yielding yourself to Christ, not perfect until you're in heaven, but a, a process, Romans 8.13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's the life of a believer. We're, we're constantly putting to death the deeds of the body. There's a constant sanctification that's going on so that we're we're growing we're not where we should be perfect christ likeness but we're not where we were we're putting off sins we're putting on christ we're making no provision for the flesh we the redeemed of the lord are placed into the living body the body of christ the church of the living god we once were enemies we are now made alive in christ we once were dead in sins, now we are alive, together with all the saints placed into his body to walk out this amazing grace. To walk is this essential reality of what it means to be in Christ. Living things always grow. Dead people don't. God has given his body, the church, grace to encourage growth, to correct errors, and to remove those who are not saved. This process is known as church discipline. In our faith and practice on the back, we state this. 
Discipline is an essential requirement to be a true disciple of Christ. It is a clear command of Christ to his church. Matthew 18, 15 to 20. It was commanded and practiced by the apostles. Therefore, as a matter of faith and conviction, disciples must be part of the ministry and practice of each local church. It is a matter of obedience to God, not convenience or preference. It is, necess- it is a necessary part of fulfilling our divine commission to disciple all the nations. So if you're concerned for discipling the nations, church discipline is part of that. Now, as you, as you study the subject of church discipline, as is written in our, in our church practice, there are two general applications of discipline in the church. And these are important. There's formative discipline and corrective discipline. Formative and corrective. Formative discipline refers to the public and private instruction of the Word of God as it applies to daily life or all Scripture for all life. You've heard that before, right? We live a life that is bound by Scripture. So this is the, this is the formative discipline. This, this is what forms the life of the church. This instruction is the responsibility of the church as a whole, including everybody, pastors, teachers, and all the members. It's the speaking the truth in love. It's the loving one another. It's all these aspects, all coming back to the centrality of the gospel, the centrality of Christ as defined by Scripture. Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. Everything goes back to Scripture. And and this is a a healthy, life-giving way in which we share in the communion of Christ within the community of the saints. Certainly, this application of spiritual discipline or teaching should be the most prevalent and common in the life of the church. Amen? Which it is. The Lord's Supper, all these activities, the preaching of the Word, right? This is formative discipline. Corrective discipline is more specific. Corrective disciplines, and again, I'm quoting from our church practice, this refers to private and public confrontation of the offending member that may result in dismissal from membership. So when you say church discipline, this is what people usually think of, right? Excommunication, okay? This becomes necessary when a member of the body of the church fails to positively respond to the formative discipline of the church. That's in our writing. So if someone is not responding in faith to the formative discipline, to the preaching of the word, to the exhortations, to the Lord's Supper that we take every week. Don't bring judgment on yourself. Take communion in a worthy manner. Right? If someone is not responding by faith in a positive manner, and that then formative discipline becomes necessary. Correction. Uh, Matthew 18, 15 to 20 shows an example of how this can be practiced. This too is also outlined in our church practice document. Turn to the text, Matthew 18, 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. So you're going to see time and time again, the goal of this corrective discipline is always reconciliation. It's to gain your brother. It's to win him or her back. But if he will not hear, then you keep going. If you will not hear, you don't just say, well, I guess that's just each one to his own. No. If he will not hear, take with you one or two more. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So here we see the church has a judicial role in defining and upholding the word of God. That everything may be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. If he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. And the, the word heathen and tax collector, meaning a heathen would be an unbeliever, and a tax collector is a traitor, someone who's not faithful 
to, to your covenant, i.e. the Jews, right? <laughs> they were, the tax collectors were taking you know, tax money from them and, and ripping them off for the Romans. Tax collectors, right? Kind of like the IRS, but maybe a little worse. Maybe a little worse. Okay, yeah, maybe a little worse. So, in other words, a, a good summary statement would be Proverbs 10.17. He who keeps instruction is in the way of life, but whoever refuses correction goes astray. That's a good summary, isn't it? So, in other words, a believer is someone who's constantly being corrected by others and the Word of God and is happy about it. Amen? Isn't that why we come, we come here to preaching? Isn't that why we come to one another? We come to be corrected. And in that, we recognize there's some humility in us that says, you know what? I need correction. Right? Because I love the way of life. He who keeps instruction is in the way of life. But he who refuses correction goes astray. So we see there's private reproof. There's private confirmation. There's, there's process of going through this. There's a public announcement. There's a church awareness. And then there's public exclusion. Matthew 18. Let's talk about the purpose of church discipline. And for the purpose of church discipline, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 5, the whole chapter. That really gets into the, the purpose as to why we do what we do. And the first thing is because there's, there's evil. There's evil situations that arise in the church. Now, there are a variety of situations. Each situation is different. The specific situation will affect how the discipline is dealt with and carried out. Not everything is the same. For example, dealing with the sexually immoral person versus the gossip and the slanderer versus the gambler versus the drunk. You know what I'm saying? They're, they're different. I mean, the heart of it is the same. Are they open to the gospel and the sanctifying work of God? The heart of it is the same. But some of the specifics, I mean, the gambler needs to stop gambling. The alcoholic needs to be helped in his addiction and is being kept from alcohol. The gossip, well, that might be everybody needs to stay away from that person because the amount of gossip and slander are just spewing forth out of their mouth and they disrupt and, and, and can dislodge a whole community, right? So, so we do need to take that into account. And the church has to weigh, weigh all these out. The elders have to weigh out these various circumstances. But here is a circumstance that was a very profoundly evil circumstance. 1 Corinthians 5.1. It has actually been reported that there is sexually immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. This would be the word uh, grotesque sexual immorality, right? All sexual immorality is sinful. But this carries with it an even greater um, shock value. Okay? The response of this situation, verse 2, and you are puffed up and not more mourned. That he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. So he's dealing with the whole church here. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. So Paul said this is not good. This is clearly a sin. And then he calls on the name of the Lord to do church discipline, excommunication. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. It's pretty serious, isn't it? So, again, different jurisdictions. There are sins leading to death. The church does not have the authority of the sword. That's given to the state. That's Romans 13. The church's role is redemptive. So how does the church apply these things? You hand one over to Satan. That's the, church, that's the church's role. That's the power of the keys. Okay? It's not any less severe. Different jurisdiction. But what I want you to notice is the purpose. Why does the church hand one over from the church 
to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? There's a purpose in church discipline. That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So it is redemptive. It is because I love you. It's not out of spite. It's not out of vengeance. It's not, I'm so angry, I just want to... No, it's none of that stuff. It's done in love. That the, that the erring person may be saved. That the erring person may come to their senses to deliver them. So there's a, deliver, uh, there's a delivery over to temp, temporal destruction by removing one from the blessings and protection of the church. One is being delivered to Satan for temporal destruction that they may experience eternal redemption. That's the purpose of church discipline. That's the central purpose of church discipline. But there's, there's more. There's also church purity. And under church purity, I mean, I could have broken this down more. Um, it's, it's the name of Christ. Christ's church. This is about the name of Christ and the honor of God and the glory of God as well as the purity of the church. Verse 6. Your glory is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So if the church just winks at the sin, if the church just says, oh, it's no big deal, as they were, they were puffed up. Now, we don't know all that that meant, but they were not having a good response to this. They were winking at the sin. They were downplaying the sin. It wasn't that big a deal in their eyes. Okay? So this is very dangerous to the church because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So you let a little, a little of this and a little of that, um, as, is, as is so common with sexual immorality because there's so much shame carried with it and, and people don't want to deal with it. They just want to sweep it under the carpet. And there's people that have been going to the same church for 20 years. Everybody knows they're not married. They're sleeping together. They're committing immorality and no one says a thing. Okay, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It just takes out the whole church. And I've, I've been in churches growing up where it's a ping pong effect, right? This person, then that person, they have a, and it's just, just a way, it's a wickedness, right? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So church discipline says no. We, it's called out, it's brought out, it's removed. So we have to be very clear that we cannot tolerate this stuff because of the purity of the church. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So the sacrifice of gospel, the sacrifice of the gospel, necessitates that we don't play around with sin. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So here, it's this Passover meal, which, which is our Lord's Supper celebration. It's, it's so critical that we have sincerity and truth. Sincerity means the core of who I am is what I'm portraying. That's sincerity. The core of who I am is what I'm portraying. There's no shifting. There's no, there's no hiding. Sincerity in truth, what I am in truth. So what you see on Sunday is what you see on Monday is what you see on Tuesday is what you see on Wednesday, right? So if you come to my house, you're going to see me the same way that I am. There's not going to be this, this hypocritical shift that those who are hiding their sin in the assembly do, okay? Must, this is the true worship of God, sincerity and truth, not with the old leaven, the false worship, the pharisaical ducking and dodging away from God, it's wickedness. No. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Now he's going to define what he means by that. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous, the extortioners, the idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world because everybody in the world is doing those things. So he's not saying that you can't ever be a friend to your neighbor and love your neighbor as yourself and be a witness of the gospel when your neighbors are in all kinds of sins, right? Jesus was a friend of sinners. And you know what that means? He was a friend of sinners. He, he would go up to lost people and befriend them. He didn't say, oh, I can't believe how lost these lost people are. Oh, I can't believe how sinful these sinful people are. 
No, he was a friend of sinners. He reached out to sinners. He hung out with sinners. Okay, so that's not where this is going. But, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. There's the difference. So if you claim to be a Christian and you're walking in the world with unconfessed, unrepentant sin, that's where, the, that's where the problem comes in. That's what Paul's talking about here. Not to keep company with anyone named a brother. And see how he's careful to use the word named. He's not saying he is a brother because at this point we don't know. And that's, the, that's really the main question of church discipline. The central question the church has to wrestle with in every church discipline case is this question. Do I believe this person's testimony? If the answer is no, that's where church discipline comes in. Okay, that's the central question. Now, and there's a lot of different ways to get there, right? There's a lot of different situations and, and, and sins people fall into, right? Right, but that's the question. So here, anyone who's named a brother who is sexually immoral, covetousness, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. So people that are claiming Christ, but the gospel is not rooting out their sin, an open and honest confession and humility, then they are to be disciplined out of the church. They're not even to eat that fellowship meal together. So that fellowship meal, it means something here, right? Because communion and the Lord's Supper are go, go together. And so you're not taking communion. That's certainly you're banned from the Lord's table. And the Lord's table is a big one. Why is the Lord's table so important? Because the Lord's table is the affirmation of your Christianity. Right? That's the affirmation of your Christianity. So you take the Lord's Supper, you're affirming your, that's the ongoing symbol that you're a Christian. The Lord's Supper, Supper is a big deal. Um, baptism is your entrance into the visible church. The Lord's Supper is your continuation that you have a good confession. It plays that role, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So if you no longer have a credible confession, you're not going to be, you're barred from communion, you're barred from the fellowship of the saints because you're not a believer and only believers have fellowship together. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside God judges? Fair, right? Who's going to judge the, those who are outside the church? Right? They're under the wrath of God. Isn't that that's the message of the gospel? We go out and say, hey, come to our church. We're really nice people. Is that what we say? No. We go out there and we say, you're under the wrath of God. You're going to be thrown into hell unless you repent and come to Jesus. He's the only Savior. That's what we say. Right? It's a different go- that's, that's the gospel. And so God will judge. That, that's, they're under the wrath of God. Now, we have been. Our confession is that we've been saved from the wrath of God. So our judgment must be very clear about those who are in the church. Those who are outside God's judges, therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person in the church. So there's some purpose and some practice. Let's go to the authority. Who gives you the authority to do that? That's the keys. Church discipline is given to the church. Paul said it in the passage we just read, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, do church discipline. So that, that 1 Corinthians 5.4, that's a, that's a strong affirmation of the presence of Christ with his church, isn't it? I mean, can you think of a, a stronger way to say that? In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together, i.e. the church, along with my spirit, with the exousia, that's authority, power, could be translated authority, of our Lord Jesus Christ, do church discipline. Deliver one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The keys have been given to the kingdom. Matthew 18, 18. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind 
on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's authority. What do keys do? Keys open and lock. The keys have been given to the church. So what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. When you, key, when you use the keys in the way in which, now listen, align with God, that authority is the binding power of God on earth as it is in heaven. What could be more serious than that? Nothing. 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 And, and this is where the wicked are lost. Like, we've done church discipline before where we deliver one to God, to over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And you know when people really react? Not there, but when you tell it to the church. Why? They have no fear of God. They only fear man. And they can't believe that men will think bad of them now. To me, you just said your own sentence. That's terrifying. Who cares what people think? If God thinks this of me, if God thinks this, what is, that is the most important thing. But I fear God way more than I fear man. What can man do to me? Kill me. What can God do to me? Throw me in hell forever. So you see where this is going. This is so important. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And when the, when the church is using the authority in which Jesus Christ has given, then this becomes a reality. And I have to say that because we're all a bunch of rebellious Americans who are individuals at the core and, and just doing our own thing every chance we can get. We can hardly understand authority. That just, that's our culture, right? That's, that's where we're coming from. And so we're all hypersensitive of someone overstepping their authority, right? We all know parents don't have absolute authority to do whatever they want, right? It's only what God has given them. But this is true. This is very important. But in that sphere of authority, they do have authority from God. Same with pastors. Same with believers. That's how authority works. There's jurisdictions. It's that way of everything. It's certainly that way with church discipline. So can a church overstep their bounds? Absolutely. Can parents overstep their bounds? Absolutely. That is not a legitimate expression of authority. I was talking to someone um, recently who was talking about a church that was doing church discipline and he couldn't tell me the reason why all these people were disciplined. Like he was there and had no clue why they were disciplining these different members. I said, you have no idea why that the church was doing that? Like the situation should be stated, right? I'm like, that doesn't sound clear. Our pastors don't have the authority any more than fathers have the authority just to unilaterally punish people because they feel like it. That's not biblical. That's tyrannical, right? On the other hand, to do nothing at all, to say nothing at all, that's rebellious. That's rebellious. Tyranni tyranny is wrong, but so is doing nothing and saying nothing. That's equally as wrong. What is worse? That's a dumb question. <laughs> right? They're both really bad because they miss the point of the gospel. That is the power of God for salvation. And the reign of Christ in freeing people from sin. We have these keys. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So these, this practice of church discipline is, is, is often practiced by the weak church, meaning a few people. Not that impressive, like Revelation talking about you are weak. Okay, two or three. You don't need 5,000 people to agree. I think it's very interesting in this context, he says that, two or three. Right? And it's because it's like it's done before God. 
And if you do it before God, it's done. Doesn't, it's not the will of man. This is not the will of man stuff. This is the will of God stuff. You understand, this is holy ground. This is the fear of the Lord. It's Christ's church. Scattered around the globe and all these different denominations and pieces, right? And where, where men are, and women are gathering together even this day to fear God and practice the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. Jesus says, hey, listen, I'm right there with you. I'm, I'm doing this with you. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Richard, that was the right prayer. He is in, he is in the midst of us. God is guiding us. God's got this whole thing. I mean, if, if you seen, I could talk a lot about the providence of God in this whole thing. And give glory to God. Amen? Amen. So, the authority has been given to the church to use, the, to use these keys. Okay, next point. Evaluation. Who receives church discipline? Good question, right? Isn't that a good question? Who receives church discipline? Everybody who messes up? Who receives church discipline? We can go to Matthew 18, 15 there. We can say, well, the one who's not responding in faith to the word of God. That's, that's a pretty good answer, isn't it? That's a pretty exegetically sound answer. The one who's not responding in faith to the word of God. Interestingly, it's not the one who sins, is it? Because we believe in the gospel. It's not, if your brother sins against you, then, you'd go, then you do church discipline. See, see the difference? It's not if your brother sins, you, you do church discipline, right? Why? Because this is all this church discipline stuff is built on the reality of, of the theology of progressive sanctification, of the gospel bringing sanctification in the life of a believer. So if a church doesn't understand or believe in the practice of progressive sanctification, of being more like Christ, then church discipline is going to make no sense to that congregation. So we believe in the perseverance of the saints. We believe that those whom Christ has called and chosen, he's also sanctifying. So this church discipline walks that out with believers. So it's not if you sin, you're under church discipline. It's if you sin and you stiffen your neck and you harden your heart and you refuse correction. Okay, now you're not responding to the word of God. That makes you a candidate for church discipline. Again, our statement in our church practice, corrective discipline. This refers to private and public confrontation of the offending member that may result in dismissal from membership. This becomes necessary when a member of the body of the church fails to positively respond to the formal, or I'm sorry, to the formative discipline of the church. So you've taken the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. You've lied to people. You've hidden your sin. The central question is this. The issue is this. When the church can no longer affirm the Christian testimony of the person, that's when church discipline comes into view. Because the church has a role of affirming what God is doing. Who brings salvation? God and God alone. Amen? God and God alone. We preach the message, God gives the increase. The church doesn't save anybody. I don't save anybody. Who gives the message of salvation? The church. Who does the saving? God does. Regeneration is wholly the work of God. But the church has a role in affirming what God is doing. Amen? And the church is given that role by God in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism affirms a person's salvation. The Lord's Supper affirms a person's affirmation in the church, that you are a member of Christ. So when the church can no longer affirm a person's testimony, he needs to be church disciplined. There's a helpful book, um, Building Healthy Churches, Church Discipline by Jonathan Lehman. 
And he states this, quote, Jesus gave the local church the authority of the keys to officially affirm and oversee citizens of his kingdom. Churches do not make people Christians. The Spirit does that. But churches have the declaratory authority and responsibility for making public statements before the nations about who is and is not a Christian. A church's act of excommunication, therefore, does not consist of physically and forcibly removing the individual from its public meaning as the church had the power of the sword like the state. Rather, it consists of the public statement that the church can no longer vouch for an individual's citizenship in heaven. Excommunication is the church's declaration that it can no longer affirm that an individual is a Christian. Christ seems to take it a step forward. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. When we say, okay, what shall we say that church discipline, sorry, when? When shall we say that church discipline is necessary? This is Lehman. When shall we say that church discipline is necessary? Broadly speaking, discipline is necessary when a disciple departs from the way of Christ by sinning. It's necessarily, I'm sorry, it's necessity is whenever a gap opens up between a Christian's profession and life when they fail to represent Jesus. When there's a gap that opens up. The gospel saves and sanctifies. It anticipates the road of each believer progressively being sanctified. But if that sanctification stops or never started, right? This is how you know that you know him. Keep his commandments. First John 2, 3, right? So if it stops or it never started and there's a gap that grows bigger and bigger, there is the gap between what the person says they believe and the way in which the person lives. Okay? When there's that gap covered up with hypocrisy at some, at some level, the question becomes, does the person have faith? That is why the end result of asking this question is, as Jesus said, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So the end result of church discipline as, as defined by Jesus Christ himself is let him be said, let it be said that he's not saved. Let, that he's acting like an unsaved person. And even then it says like. So there's, there's a little ambiguity because we're not God. We don't know 100% sure. We don't know. But, but based on the evidence of what we see following the Lord Jesus Christ who knows all things, who tells the church to do this, this is based on your actions. You're not acting like a Christian. So we're gonna, and, and you're not responding like a Christian. So we're going to call it like it is. And that's the end result of church discipline. Okay? So that's how, that, that helps us to get at the question, at the heart of church discipline. So that's the question. Okay, let's, let's go through some examples. And, th and there's, there's a lot of examples. I mean, I, I, we've had some here where um, man falls into sin, question him. I go back a week later. Give me a week to think about that. I go back a week later. Yeah, I don't believe the gospel. Well, that was pretty clear. He came believing the gospel, was baptized, fell into sin. I came knocking on his door a week later. What do you think about the gospel? Yeah, I don't believe the gospel. I'm tired of being a hypocrite. <laughs> to which I said, well, stop being a hypocrite and believe the gospel. <laughs> you know, redemption. I'm, I'm thinking redemption. He's thinking, I'm going to be true to who I am, which is an unbeliever. And he was gone. So that's an example, right? That's, that's an example of church discipline. Um, and and there, there's all kind of different ways in which sinners tangle themselves up. And that gap gets bigger. And that gap then gets exposed. Um, what I want to be very clear about is this. Church discipline is not about Jesus' power or ability to forgive the sins of sinners. 
This is not about the fact that Jesus is able to forgive all the sins that sinners commit. Amen? The gospel is sufficient for salvation. The gospel is sufficient to forgive you of your sins. And even if they were gross sins, like bad sins, like really bad sins, right? You picking that up? So it's not a statement about the power of the gospel, the sufficiency of the gospel, or the ability of Jesus to save sinners, even the worst, even sinners that murder other people, like Paul did in persecuting the church. And he says, I was the chief of sinners. That never left Paul, right? Even that, Paul knew that he was saved, even though he persecuted, personally persecuted the church, and Jesus had to come to him and said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? That never left Paul. Like, whoa, I didn't see it that way, <laughs> right? God opened his eyes. So Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, amen? The question is, is the person saved? That's the question. Are they walking this out? Have they fallen into an area where they really need church discipline to be corrected? Maybe they are saved and they really need this church discipline to be corrected to bring them back to their senses. All these things we yield to the Lord. But here's another example. This would be a disqualified profession. And to qualify someone's profession is a little harder. The first example I gave, pretty clear, right? That's not that hard to figure out. I don't believe the gospel then. Okay, then, guess what? I don't think you're a Christian. Not hard to get to that, right? We've had some other. The last case we did that, it, the reason it took so long and it was so long and drawn out is because the person kept affirming their faith. That's, that, takes more, that takes more time and energy. Um, this is the, a disqualified profession. Again, this is Lehman. There needs to, uh, let, me, let me back up, Not, let me quote this here. Um, this is me. But there are some sins that we really would not expect a Christian to do. And that comes from 1 Corinthians 5, right? There's some sins that we just don't expect Christians to do, like the example of 1 Corinthians 5. And this means that one is probably not a Christian, or at least that is how the church will treat the individual until the church can trust once again the genuineness of their salvation. And that's the 1 Corinthians 5 example all the way. Here's Lehman. Lehman says this. Jonathan Lehman in his book, Church Discipline. There needs to be some time dealing with the disqualified profession. There needs to be some time to pass and the fruit of repentance displayed before a church can responsibly pronounce forgiveness and reconciliation. A church cannot responsibly believe the words of a member who has been willfully living in habitual sin. It's almost as if the nature of some sins disable a church's ability to continue affirming the person's overall posture of repentance. And so the church has no choice but to remove its affirmation for the time being because the sin involves so much deceit. Again, Lehman gives an example of this. Years ago, I met regularly with a, with a young man last year I, last year, I learned that he had been arrested for shameful criminal activity and even made the local news. He had been largely, I'm sorry, he had been secretly engaged in the activity for more than a year while actively attending and serving his church. When the church learned about the sin through the man's arrest, it acted swiftly to remove him from membership. The man wept and claimed he was sorry, but because he had been living a grotesque double life, the church could not trust his words of repentance, at least for a time. It chose to test his repentance, not before the act of excommunication, but after church discipline. I believe the church was right to do so. The man's action was a threat both to other sheep and the witness of Christ in the world, making the whole situation more urgent. The church was right to discipline him swiftly because the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, therefore put away from yourselves the evil person, 1 Corinthians 
513. So there's an example that Lehman gave of when you would disqualify the person's confession that they have. Again, different situations require different responses. However, the question is the same. Can we affirm this person is a Christian? If we cannot, the church has been given the authority to claim this, to clarify this, to clarify this. Um, this is an act of love to help the erring person come to repentance, and that is the goal of church discipline. Next, restoration. Restoration. Restoration is the process of bringing the, error back, bringing the erring brother back. And I would like to start this brief section by just stressing kindness. You know, what is our, what is our demeanor towards someone like this? Kindness, right? Meekness. First Timothy two twenty one. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the name of the Lord out of a pure heart, but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. You know, it's not this, oh, I'm just going just gonna to beat him up. What? Is, that what, is that what Christ does? You know? The servant of the Lord must be gentle, able to teach patience, in humility, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. I had someone get in my face, get into me. I, said, I think, I think you need to yell at them. You need to yell at them. Why? So they can see my pride and react against my pride. Do you think that would be helpful? Does pride help bring about repentance from God? Does the anger of man ever produce anything good? You guys have tried it. Tell me. Does it? Does it work? I've tried it. I've tried it with my kids. Get angry at them. Does, it, does the wrath of man ever produce the righteousness of God? No, it's deceptive. It's deceptive. So our response is one of faith, humility, kindness. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition. Why? If God perhaps would grant them repentance. Oh God, then we pray. So this is a God thing, that God would grant them repentance. Oh, God grant them repentance. Oh, God have mercy. We have a role in that, and that's our attitude of humility and kindness to move towards the, the sinner and speak the truth in love. But God has to bring the repentance so that they may know the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. People are being taken captive by the devil himself to do Satan's will. This is a big-time spiritual warfare. But the weapons of our warfare are mighty. They're not carnal. It's not anger and, and frustration and huffiness. It's prayer and faith and humility, perseverance, love. that we can be used of God as tools in His hand. Wouldn't that be good? Wouldn't you like to be a tool of God to rescue those who are stuck in the lie of Satan? In this process of restoration and repentance, remember, there's, here's a very important principle. The greater the hypocrisy, the more you need to untangle and bear the fruit of repentance. The greater the hypocrisy. Not every sin involves a great level of deception. It's all at some level, right? But when you get into the Pharisees and Sadducees, and John the Baptist knew them well, brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, John the Baptist says this to the self-righteous. Bear Fruits worthy of repentance. 
You say you repent. You say you believe. Now, now let me see it. And he identified some things. There's a process there. Bear the fruit worthy of repentance. Okay, you say you believe. You say you're sorry. Great. What does that look like? Okay, now let's walk that out. You've got to show me some stuff. Okay. Where? You know, the person comes into these doors and uh, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What must I do to be saved? We're going to take them at their confession. Right? We may do a little background work. But if it's like most people, we're going to take them at their confession. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I've come to repent of my sins. That's your testimony. That's many of your testimonies, right? We take you at your confession. We, we do a little, little bit of there, you know, ask some questions and get some, uh, some perspectives. But, you know, based on that basic level, you know, we're going to baptize you and we're going to affirm that. This is the person who's gone around that. They've undone that. They've been, dece- they've been deceitful. They've not been honest. They've been hypocritical for a long time. They have not been... So the Pharisees needed to bear fruits worthy of repentance. But as that takes place, the goal remains the same. Come back to Christ. Like, come back to Christ. Like, Come here. Come back to Christ. We hold out reconciliation. We don't turn away. They might turn away from us. We don't turn away from them. Amen? We don't turn away from them any more than Christ turns away from you or me. Does Christ turn away from me when I sin? Does Christ turn away from you? No. Come to me, my child. Come who are heavy laden. I will give you rest. So we pursue. Leave the 99 and we go search after the one. And these, I know these things can be hard to balance out, but it's love that makes the difference. And it's love that made the difference in 1 Corinthians. Let's turn with me to, to 1 Corinthians. This is a, an example now of reconciliation. First, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So the man who, was, who had fallen in grotesque sin, the loving thing to do was for church discipline. Paul instructed the church and they followed through and they carried that out. And now... We get to hear the rest of the story. Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter two. But I determine this within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad? But the one who is made sorrowful by me. And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I come I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. For the punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. The punishment they're referring back to, 1 Corinthians 5, the church discipline that was done on the man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. The church discipline worked. Amen. Hallelujah. It worked. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Now, we don't know how much time it took, but this is a letter. And when they used to write letters, they did it with paper. And there's a thing called a stylist. No, not a stylist that they used on their cell phone. They dipped it in ink and they wrote on paper. And they couldn't text it through the phone line or even through the airwaves. No, they had to send it by hand with the person. Okay, communication was slow. I'm saying this for some people that might not understand that. <laughs> okay, it took time. So there's some time here, right? There's some time. He gave it the time. He bore the fruit worthy of repentance. Therefore, urge him to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. So the church was tested 
as well as the man. Church discipline tests us all. Will we be obedient to what God says? Will they be obedient? They were, okay? And God worked. Now whom you forgave anything, I also forgive. So this is that transactional, that, that primary church gives, gives forgiveness. They release the church discipline and, and, and all the churches are going to, Paul says, yes, I, am, I agree. I, I stand with you. For I indeed have forgiven have forgiven anything. I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. What we do on earth is done in heaven. What we bind on earth is bound in heaven. We forgive, released in heaven. Powerful. Lest Satan should take advantage of us for we are not ignorant of his devices. So once there's that affirmation and there's restoration, that restoration is complete. Amen? The goal of church discipline is restoration. This brother who was fell into grievous sin was rebuked, church discipline, repented, bore the fruits worthy of repentance, and was welcomed back in. And once he was welcomed back in, he was a brother. That's why we do church discipline. This one has a happy ending, right? Not all of them do, but this one did. So, that's a overview of church discipline, the heart of church discipline. Have an open heart, gospel reformation, correction, purpose. Know the authority that is given to the church, the keys, the evaluation. Here's some examples. Restoration is the goal. That's repentance, reconciliation, and finally, renewal. And that is our prayer. And that's what we, by God's grace, will endeavor to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness and grace. We thank you for your mercy and truth. We thank you, for the, thank you for the church of Jesus Christ. We pray now that as, as we have asked, Lord, that you be with us as we go now and make application. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen.